You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, Spine Number 29, The Northman and the movies of Robert Eggers, featuring Edgar Allan Poe, Anya Taylor-Joy, Witches, Bitches, Wikis, Me Lobster, Lovecraft, Vikings, Valkyries, Extreme Violence, and a goat named Black Phillip. Martin. Yes. Hark! Hark, Triton, hark! Bellow bid our father the sea king rise from the depths full foul in his fury. Black waves teeming with salt foam to smother this young mouth with pungent slime. To choke ye, engorging your organs till ye turn blue and bloated with bilge and brine and can scream no more. Only when he... Crowned in cockle shells and slithering tentacle tail and steaming beard, take up his fell, befinned arm, his coral tine trident screeches banshee like in the tempest and plunges right through your gullet, bursting ye, a bulging bladder no more, but a blasted bloody film now and nothing for the harpies and the souls or dead sailors to peck and claw and feed upon only to be lapped up and swallowed by the infinite waters of the dread emperor himself, forgotten to any man, to any time, forgotten to any god or devil, forgotten even to the sea, for any stuff, for part of Winslow, even any scantling of your soul is Winslow no more, but is now itself the sea! All right, have it your way. I like your cooking. Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is my sweet mermaid, Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing? Happy to be here. This really is kind of right up your alley because this is like theater kid central right now because I feel like Robert Eggers is the ultimate theater kid who's done well. I was so feeling exactly the same way. I didn't think of it as the theater kid thing, but he and I are exactly the same age and have a very similar background. He's obviously much more successful than me, but like the theater background and the like kind of his obsession with like Edgar Allan Poe and, and the likes of that. I feel like he's much smarter than I am, but if I had taken a different path, who knows, you know, it's this weird kind of, of kismet there for sure. Well, and like, he grew up basically in New Hampshire and from like high school on was putting on productions of Nosferatu where like his brothers were playing like hand painted gargoyles and he was doing like storefront theater and stuff and like really became like this weirdo like goth who just I guess never evolved from that. He just got older and more mature but like kind of stayed the same dude because when you watch his films now, they distinctly feel like 
theater pieces that he was able to essentially flesh out using the tools of cinema itself. Now, that's different from being a filmed play in my mind. It's like he takes the best parts, or at least the parts that he gravitated towards the most in theater and just applied a cinematic aesthetic to it. And frankly, his own cinematic aesthetic to it. Yeah, I would agree. And I was, you know, thinking about obviously his connection with Bergman because Bergman did a lot of theater before he'd film and also while he was doing film and in his later years, a, a considerable amount of theater. And I think it's, it's interesting that as a filmmaker, a lot of uh, Eggers stuff is very tableau heavy. Um, a lot of his shots are these very well composed still shots, specifically in The Witch and in The Lighthouse. Um, but similar to like a filmmaker like Tarkovsky, I was watching Stalker before, is you have these, it goes from tableau to tableau, and everything is so balanced in the frame. Very similar to seeing a really well put on play. You're like, okay, we're gonna spend a lot of time in this space, and the way things on the wall are spaced out just to feel kind of perfect and symmetrical. Um, from a design perspective, I can already see that from the kind of theater background he has. Well, and also it's just like the type of films that he's into too, that are clearly like inspiring his work beyond the theater is that like, it's safe to say that he and Ari Oster are like the godfathers of what we now know is to be like elevated a 24 horror, right? Like the witch his feature debut is like the first big yeah. smash for A24 and kind of helped establish their brand. Yeah, I mean, this and Hereditary are just like the, the one-two punch. The Alpha uh, and Omega. I mean, they, they really are. And it's interesting to think that, and I think with The Lighthouse and then with Midsummer for um, for Aster, Aster they, they kind of branch off in really interesting ways that they didn't, I like that both of them kind of take different, take a different path than you might expect. Um, it's funny because I feel like with some filmmakers, they do their kind of like smaller, like really like kind of pared down, like first horror film. Hereditary is a much bigger film than the witch, I think in terms of like locations and it's like the budget I believe was bigger too, but they usually would jump to something like the Northmen, but without quite the budget. So I feel like he worked up in an interesting way in terms of size. Um, it's kind of like Richard Kelly doing Donnie Darko and then trying to do Southland. That's, that's my exact after. example is that kind of, you know, like very personal kind of first indie feature. And then that big sophomore swing. Yes. And it feels like Northman would have been like your, would have been the sophomore, not the junior <laughs> swing, you know? Um, so I'm glad he did the lighthouse in between. The thing I find fascinating about Northman especially in the interviews that have been coming out as he does this press tour for the picture is that he fully admits that he had no fucking idea what he was doing on this film. Like that he was basically like none of us, cause he works with the same people time and time again, the same DP, the same production designers, the same costumer, even like Lars Knudsen is basically has spent most of his time producing both these, like his movies and Ari Oster's movies between, like, splitting time between uh, Focus, who did uh, The Northman, and then A24, who did, uh, you know, The Witch, Midsummer, Hereditary. The Lighthouse, yeah. The Lighthouse, exactly. Um, but he's been, like, pretty open about, like, man, we got there and we thought we knew what we were doing. And then it was like, ah, oh, shit. 
because this is the first film of his, and I don't want to get too far ahead before we get into the full Northman segment, but this is the first film of his where he didn't have final cut. Like it was basically there's the, did you read that New Yorker profile of him uh, from a couple weeks back? No, I just read an indie wire one today. Okay. I think they might have referenced the the New Yorker, but well, the New Yorker one, the the writer is with him the entire time, like in the editing suite as he's receiving notes from the studio. Mm-hmm. Because with the witch and the lighthouse, he didn't really test screen that. Like A twenty four doesn't do that. Like they basically give the filmmakers yeah. the money that they think they need to make their their project, albeit like they're smaller budgeted films, you know, and then. They go out, make the movie, and A24 puts it out. I mean, that's how something like The Lighthouse fucking exists. Or even, like, Hereditary. Like, there's no reason for there to be a three-hour cut of Midsummer. Yeah. Um, other than A24 was like, yeah, that's fine. You can do whatever you want, Ari Oster. Like, you just made a shitload of money with Hereditary. But it's like, with Focus, um, you know, that's a Comcast Universal company there. And they're, pl- like, putting initially $70 million into the Closer North to 90. Well, and then yeah. after the COVID delays and like all the, the kind of extra work they had to do on the picture, it ballooned to like 90 million and Eggers was like, Oh shit. And then of course the studio is sort of wringing their hands a little bit nervously because they're testing the movie. And apparently the highest scores that the movie got in the test run phase was like in the 60s, like not doing great. So they were basically trying to streamline the picture through notes and the New Yorker profile, which is pretty fascinating, and really in depth, goes into like how Eggers is taking these notes and going to his editor, who's the same editor who's worked like basically since his shorts and stuff and is like, you know, we didn't shoot coverage. Like he doesn't, that's one of his big directorial, like autorist stamps, you know, is that he shoots in these very long takes. Um, sometimes these very still long takes. And in the case of the Northman, these incredibly elaborate, like tracking shots that are borderline Kubrickian at times. And then he's like, some has a glory kind of shit. And yeah. that's the thing is that where he was like, well, we didn't, it's it's not like we were shooting shot reverse shot and have like other footage that we can use to like fix this. It's like we were did we, you know we did one of those those huge battle tracking shots twenty times and even Alexander Skarsgård was like exhausted by the end of it because he was like I don't know what the fuck to do like I'm just running through this and just massacring people. But Eggers is like they want us to change like these major things and uh, sorry I don't have anything to use. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, again, I don't, like you said, I don't want to jump too, too much into the Northmen, but, uh, you, you can definitely sense he's not a coverage filmmaker. Um, cause again, in, in The Witch and the Lighthouse, it, it's very, again, very tableau heavy. I mean, these scenes play, I think of the scene where she kills her mother at the end of The Witch, and it really lingers on that great shot of the, of the cottage. And her oh, yeah. getting up slowly with the blood, you know, or even the scene where the 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 son dies oh, after vomiting the apple. It's almost done in one long continuous take that keeps going in and out, and like it even drifts with his body when he like rises up and says that he's being embraced by the Lord and everything. But yeah, like imagine having like some weird producer come to you and be like, um. 
can we like recut this a little bit? And you're like, no, I can't. Like it's done in one fucking take. Like, I don't know what to tell you, man. Can we cut to the mom for a nice smile or a puppy? It's like, yeah, that's, that's not there. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's not what we're doing here, but let's get to the witch itself because I'm not going to lie. I have the unpopular opinion that I revisited this for the first time since fantastic fest, where I first saw it still don't love this movie. Like everybody else does. I don't either. Um, I think what's interesting about the witch, I saw this at fantastic fest. We did not know each other yet. We were, you know, two ships passing in the night at the same film fest. And, um, I was my first time there. So I mean, really cool. I think I saw it the same day as fucking green room. I mean, talk about, uh, did you see first or second screening? Second screening. That's how I was. I think I I might've seen the same screening. You did. We were, we were at the second, I was second half. So yeah, I was because I, I did the second half pass the first year. And I was with my good buddy Matt. And I remember when I always when I think of the wish, I think of him because it was one of our first times at, at um Alamo together. And I hadn't been a lot of times. I've been a couple of times during my first year at South by. And I remember he ordered this big fucking chicken Caesar salad. And it just it was all like iceberg lettuce, so super fucking loud. And that movie's quiet. The witch is quiet as hell. So when I think of the witch, I think of Matt Reichman not be able to eat his salad until the very, very end. So it gets to the end when things start to get louder with the keening and shit. And he's just like shoveling Caesar salad into his face. I have a similar uh, fantastic fest story where we went to see, do you remember the tribe, the yes. movie that draft house films put out? That's co- done entirely in sign language, right? There's no spoken dialogue and it's incredibly quiet. It's three hours long. And like a, is it Yugoslavian? crime epic it's one of the eastern block countries really good movie but that year they had the nachos nachos because (laughs) and there were these like giant like tostadas basically fuck yeah that were in celebration of nacho vigilando's colossal i believe was the the Mm -hmm. closing night film that year and i stupidly in the same way that your buddy ordered a caesar salad i was like yeah i'm gonna watch this three-hour movie about deaf criminals not thinking that there's probably not going to be much sound to this. Ordered the nachos. I bit into one and it crunched through the entire theater. And I was like, ooh, this is probably a bad idea. Didn't touch them for the rest of the time. Basically, I even asked for a box. I was like, can I take, can I take these? We're going to get this to go. We're going to get this to go. And the server was like, yeah, you fucking moron. Of course you are. <laughs> but my – so – I was definitely caught up, I think, in the hype. I'd heard it had, it had been it's a couple months after, um, actually like six or seven months after um, Sundance. Yeah. Because Sundance is January and this was September, right? Um, so I guess eight or nine months. But I was super excited. My first time at Fantastic Fest. And again, like you said, it was kind of the birth of this, I guess, like new elevated horror, especially the A24 style. And I was, I was pretty, I loved the look of it. I loved the vibe. I think it's got a great tone to it. At that time, this is now like, you know, fucking seven years ago now. And, but at the time I kind of got out and I felt pretty cold about it. And especially once people started talking about it more, like, oh, the witch is so genius. I think what I missed in this film, and I think I still did, I watched this last night, is a little bit more pulp. Um, something that he, he talked about when he's, um, was interviewed at the lighthouse and which I, is my favorite to gun my favorite of the three is the one that works best for me of the three films. 
is that he likes to keep things with a big question mark, right? He, he was like with a lighthouse. I don't want to do like, he's like, there's Lovecraft references, but I don't want to have it be like, no, he's a part of the cult of Dagon. And there's all these like specific, like um, myth making, or I guess um, world building within the film. The witch feels like I want a little bit more of that. And there's, there's these spicy moments of like really fun witch shit, but it's kind of few and far between. Um, and some of it just kind of feels a little bit it fucking drags. Um, yeah, for a 90 minute movie, I, it moves like a fucking glacier. Yeah, I the thing though that why I like revisiting it after just seeing the Northmen and recently seeing the lighthouse as well is there still elements of it that I like about Eggers. And one of the things is, of course, his attention to detail and his research. So watching it again and with subtitles this time, I hadn't seen it as well since Fantastic Fest. I love his his love for language. I love that he does all this research and he talks quite a bit about that with all his films as he spends months and months and months, sometimes with his brother, like when they wrote with Max when they wrote The Lighthouse together, is, you know, reading old journals of lighthouse keepers, correspondence, reading reading Melville, reading Conrad in the kind of way that um, the people of that era would speak. And you can see beyond that though, they make it kind of music. I love the scene where the father says to he's like love you christ love you prayer and it just really rolls off in this beautiful way and you of course you know opening with hark you know this i've never seen that in the lighthouse in the theater and smiling ear to ear just the the beautiful language that he had put together um all period accurate but also it just he makes it he makes it kind of sing even in the witch which is probably again his most boring film well, and to your point about the research is that, you know, he's basing a lot of the uh, dialogue in The Witch off of, like, the journal of, like, the first Puritan governor that he was basically reading at the time yeah. to where, like, that's where he... So he was very committed to mining it for, like, the dialect. And, yes. Like, this hyper-specific dialect. It's the same way with, like, the lighthouse where, like, he was reading journals of actual wikis, like, actual lighthouse keepers, so that he could get a real vibe and feel for how that dialogue flowed. Now, at the same time, like, he's clearly a Shakespeare nut because he likes to write an almost, like, not quite iambic pentameter, but, like, there's rhymes and there's callbacks and it, th th there's a lyricism yeah. to the way that his dialogue is written. And then, like, you can see, like, Willem Dafoe really biting into it. And honestly, like, the big discovery of the witch, Anya Taylor-Joy, like, she digs into her performance there and like really handles it in a way that makes you think like this girl's been acting for 40 years and like she just turned 18 when pr the production started. It's um, I love the Shakespeare connection too, because one of my favorite things about listening, listening to Shakespeare, watching Shakespeare perform, whether in film or on theater on the stage is that moment when you're hearing a monologue and your brain is putting together what it means. Like it's it's the it's the weird turns of phrase that are saying something sometimes something so simple, but in this roundabout flowery way, you're like, oh, that's what they're talking about now. And it's like almost like you're you're translating in your head as you watch. It's not it's not easy watching. It's not easy listening either. I mean, the same with the lighthouse. The lighthouse is even I think even denser. Oh uh, yeah. In terms of like what the fuck and like 
that's great with subtitles as well. I mean, it really does help to have, for me, with that kind of thing is like I could pause and, oh, okay, really get into the language a little bit more because it can kind of fly by you quickly. Well, the story behind the the genesis of the lighthouse that I had heard on, I think it's the the interview that he did with Sean Fennessy on The Big Picture, is that he talked about how his brother, Max, had an idea for a ghost story in a lighthouse. That's what yeah. it was supposed to the be. The ghost runs the lighthouse is what and I read. Then, yeah, yeah, exactly. But then Max kind of ran out of steam on the idea, and, and Robert Eggers was like, well, do you mind if I take a crack at this and kind of do it my way? And more or less, like, Max Eggers is credited as a writer, but it's almost like entirely Robert's baby. Like, especially the dialogue that he does there. Oh, yeah. It's it's so it's so musical. Um, but, yeah, I think The Witch, too, something he talked about, this connects to The Witch, but he talked about with The Lighthouse when he was being interviewed, was that he likes to sneak um, exposition into throwaway lines. Right. And so if you're really trying to, like, unlock the puzzle that his films can be, and, he's not, and he doesn't believe that he doesn't like his films being considered puzzles but it's like there's a story in there that's it's all connected but it can wash over you very quickly with again the, the commitment to detail um and you don't pick up sometimes on really important information that is said like just a throwaway line or in a very flowery way where you're like i'm not quite sure i got that but that's a really important plot point yeah, you I know. want to talk about that when we get to the the main segment on the Northman a bit because I've seen it twice now, and on the second viewing, I noticed one thing that's kind of what you're describing right there to where I was like, oh, he's telling you. Like, he's literally telling you exactly what's going to happen in this entire movie, and like on first viewing, like my eyes glazed over when one thing happened. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? And then it's like, oh, his movies... While they're not puzzle boxes, I do think there's an element of decoding to yep. them. Because you're trying to figure out, because of his oblique kind of storytelling sensibilities, like what he's after. Like with The Witch, it feels like at first, like you could just take it all at face value. It's about a girl, she's in the woods, bad shit starts happening to, to her Puritan parents and her family. And then we find out that, you know, basically a witch is behind it the whole time. Now, the one thing I love about that movie is that Robert Eggers very early on just says, there's a witch. Like, it's, it's not like the first fake. six minutes. That's of the what movie. I mean. Like, yeah. it's not it's not faked. It's not they're a, almost like an M. Not the, the village. Shyamalan I kept thinking the village. Where, yeah. like, you would be like, oh, what's actually happening here? He's like, no, there's a witch. She's in the woods. She's up to some bad shit, man. And this is going to end poorly for everybody involved. And you're like, okay, well, what happens from here on out? It's it's one of the things I think that serves him well, again, is his attention to detail, not just with the language, but like the production design. Because he had done a lot of theater, a lot of design for theater, but also for short films of Friends, right. his own stuff, like for his Telltale Heart, uh, Edgar Allan Poe short, um, where... He's obviously obsessed with the the minuscule details of of props and of of the the weave of like leather. I think of like the kids, um, his gun strap in the witch, and the, the the perfect way that the two leather straps are woven together with these leather strips. Like these little things you can know that he's like obsessed with. Something he talked about 
Well, there was something that Anya Taylor Joy talked about with with the witch, to where like they showed up and they were all wearing authentic clogs that like were really hard to walk and move in, like they hurt the shit out of their feet. But she specifically was like, "That's when I knew I that like this is my dude," you know, because she was like, as a performer, it's way easier when like you're just in it. Like you're in the period garb of the, like the clothes that these people would have been wearing at the same time. Like it allows you to almost do, it's kind of like the, the baseline for jazz in a weird way. Now I'm interpreting what she said. Like she's not going into jazz metaphors, but like, it's almost like the baseline to jazz to where like it keeps you going in one direction. And like you have to move within this one kind of time frame, but it's what you do around those notes that really defined your, her, like your performance and Anya Taylor joy, like really found, like she says, like the witch informed how she acted, how she like behaved, how she did it in every movie going forward. She said that if it wasn't for the witch, there would be none of that for her. Like it just taught her how to be a, a performer and an actress because like Robert Eggers was so exacting in his methods that like, she just carried that into every role forward. That's cool. I, I like to hear that. Cause I mean, she has obviously gone on to a very successful career and then she's back. She's a bona fide movie star. She's, she's amazing. And even shitty movies like the new, like new mutant, she's the best part of that movie. Right. Like it's like, she really saves the scenes she's in. It's a mess of a movie, but something he's talked about with his, you know, his exacting detail I think your point of like the baseline is like it is it is the foundation of his films because for him it's like once the research is done it, he said it all comes from that it springs from research so the dialogue the design comes from research so he doesn't have to make those decisions he said he brought up an example of the time that we wasted on um the lighthouse for example of like well we have a couple options when it comes to like lapels we could do this and it could give us more of this feel he's like fuck that shit just do the lapel what would they be wearing okay so he's very matter of fact about like the details but like you're saying is like what he builds around that is sometimes very mythic and when i was rewatching the witch and rewatching lighthouse and and seeing the northman is that there's like a really like cool conflict in i think his films between a very realistic world, like in terms of how it's shown and a very mythic kind of mystical um, story that's built around it. Cause you think about like the lighthouse, he could have shot that full German expressionist. He didn't, you know, he could have done the, the design and really pared down the design of, of the, the lighthouse cabin and the, and the lighthouse itself made it even starker and much more expressionistic, but he didn't, he wanted to still show, the minute details of what it is to be a wiki, but at the same time, do this very Lovecraftian William Hope Hodgson, you know, kind of nautical horror. Well, when we did our Ty West episode for X, we talked a lot about texture. Yeah. And now his movies are entirely made up of texture. Like there's almost no narrative to them or like the threadbare yeah. uh, narrative that like acts as almost like the, the, uh, kind of structure for him to build around and Eggers is the exact same way. But I think that he's almost totally texture like times a thousand because the storytelling for him almost comes from that texture. Like, you know, like I just said, like with the, the, the narrative to the witch, like there's not much to it. But you find all of it in the details of like the thatched house, the way that they like 
But one of the weird details I, I didn't notice on first uh, go round that I did on this time, like when they wander out into the woods and get lost and then the dad, it immediately cuts when they come back and he has the two kids literally tied yeah. to the fucking posts of the fence and while he goes out to investigate and you're like, well, he, he just didn't, like an average filmmaker would just have them like put into the corner or like punished or even slapped or like something just very generic. He's like, no, this is what the Puritans would have done. They would have hogtied their fucking children to a fence post while they go out to see what evil spirits await them in the woods. And you're like, God, this, this tells you so much about who these people are. It's in the same way that like, a huge plot point in the witch revolves around him trading the the father trading his wife's uh, like prized the, the cup. Ch- yeah, chalice, yeah. You know, and going out to, to hunt for furs and taking the kid in the wilderness and because she's almost more upset that he's violated God's law and like how they're supposed to live their life. Because like the thing that's funny to me about the witch on first viewing and the second one is that like it's about a crew of people who are so high and mighty that the fucking pilgrims, not exactly known for their moral flexibility, are like, yo, you got to get the fuck out of here. Like, you're banished because you're too hardcore, man. And that becomes almost like a, a guiding light throughout the entirety of his filmography is that it's all about these people who are obsessed with a certain way that they either live their lives or complete a task to where like in the lighthouse you have these two guys who are stuck inside as even Eggers says this giant phallus yeah, Bill Dick and and how they're obsessed with controlling the dick and uh becoming like the the guy in charge of that lighthouse like and and how they're obsessed with this one job the entire time and then in the northman it's literally just about a guy who will journey across oceans of time to exact his revenge. That's it. That's the movie. But you get everything in those muddy villages, those fucking boats that he's out there that like, even when he had, you know, uh, Viking experts, like scholars acting as consultants on these movies, they were like, yeah, an average director would be like, oh, you know, that boat, it's all the way out of like, out of focus like we we could just have a you know a piece of plywood out the wood there and like kind of fill in the details later no robert eggers is like build me a mo- like a museum rep ready replica and we're gonna put it even if the it's out in the distance and the audience can't even make out the details on it like that's how exacting he is in his methods now i do want to ask you this before we get to the northmen the one thing that I am interested in is the reaction to him to where a bunch of, even as we're talking now is that we take great pride or like we value like his exactitude and his, his meticulous researching and almost like the show offiness because he, he uses it to almost like do this, like check out the big brain on Brad type thing. <laughs> but like, we love this, but the one movie that the Northman made me think a lot about is The Revenant and how we talked shit on Inneratu 
and and Leo and how like because they were they did a lot of the same thing that the Northmen did and even the the lighthouse and and the witch to a lesser extent is that it's all about like look how fucking hard this is we only shot it when we had natural light and Leo was wearing bear skins and fighting actual animals and blah 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 blah, blah. like all of this stuff that was just like real try hard insanity on Iteratu's part and I know that a lot of people revolted against The Revenant a movie that I admittedly like a whole lot and when I saw for the first time I was like what the fuck are you guys talking about this movie totally like shreds like Leo drives a horse off the side of a waterfall. Like, how could you not love that? I just wondered your opinion, because I have a take on it, but I wondered your opinion on that of, like, why we embrace somebody like a Robert Eggers for all of his try-hard theater kid bullshit, but, like, in Aratu, we're like, no, no, sir. Like, that's too much from you. Yep. Um, I have some thoughts. Uh, so, first of all, I'm not a big fan of The Revenant, and I think one of the reasons was... Um, I don't like Inuratu that much as a filmmaker, period. And I never really Me have. Me neither. That's why I, I'm surprised I like The Revenant so much. But he... The main difference between the two films is is definitely size and celebrity um, and, 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 and volume. Um, it's... I remember... Uh, I've really been enjoying Mads Mikkelsen uh, on the interview tour for Secrets of Dumbledore. He keeps making fun of method acting. And I think he's pointing at Morbius. He keeps saying, oh, yeah. he goes, why do method acting if you're in a piece of shit? And you and I have talked about this very thing before. And I'm like, God damn, God bless you, Mads Mikkelsen, right? And so I feel very similar about The Revenant is like they were screaming from the mountaintops while filming it, when finishing it, for your consideration for the Oscars. It's like, look how hard Leo worked, right? And of course, there's a great article. I think it was from uh, The Guardian about, um, I think it was The Atlantic. It was a great article about how method acting and like that kind of filmmaking that surrounds it of like hard living is to reclaim a masculinity that is not inherent in acting. This idea that the acting for a long time is considered somewhat effeminate, right? And the idea of method acting is, you go back to Brando, is like making it masculine again, making it torturous to do. Um, the bad boy icon. Yeah, but it. but it's but it's also just really hard. Like you're you're hurting right. yourself. You're you think of like you know Christian Bale for like the machine is oh my god he lost all that weight. Or to um, your point with Brando on the waterfront, like you don't even have to do all the body transformation stuff. It's literally about like the working class, like two fisted hero, you know, like going against the system. Like it it represents a certain type of masculinity that doesn't. That's like the anti-theater kid, frankly. Very much so. Or you think about like the, the classic uh, fight between uh, Dustin Hoffman and uh, Lawrence Olivier when they did Marathon Man, when Hoffman shows up completely emaciated and exhausted. And he's like, Lawrence, I'm ready for the scene. I haven't slept for three days. I haven't shaved. And Lawrence Olivier's like, it's called acting, Dustin. You know, it's this dichotomy between British and, you know, American method style. But for me, I think the thing that would annoy me at Revenant again is the 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 how loud it was, how planned it seemed to garner praise, um, the, the way that the 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 PR people were working. I also think they were trying to purposely buy a sense of like, oh, this was like Apocalypse Now. It's like no, Apocalypse Now is Apocalypse Now. It was Crazy Town. I think they were trying to buy that sense of, of, of wildness, and it's not there. Well, I'm going to push back against this, too, is that 
Ethan Hawke is quoted as saying that he loved working on The Northman because he always wanted to be on a set that felt like Apocalypse Now. Like, purposefully name-dropped Apocalypse Now. So again, I think it's... The the PR thing is that in in the the Revenant's case, it's being used to go after an Oscar. Yes, like it's being used to be to do awards bait type stuff, which I always thought was funny for that movie because it's just a pulp ass western. Like yeah. that's the thing that I like about it. Like it's gnarly as fuck. Tom Hardy's out of his mind. <laughs> it ends in like a giant <laughs> knife fight where they're cutting each other's fucking hands and fingers off and shit. Like, they're murdering people in, like, the most horrible ways. Like, Leo fights a fucking bear. It's a great scene. But, I mean, like, that's kind of my thing is that there's not a whole lot of difference between this and the Northman. The Northman's just kind of almost the artier version of it, but not even by that much. And they're not doing it. They're releasing this movie in April as opposed to November or December. And not positioning it as an awards movie or an Oscar movie, but at the same time, all of like the PR campaigning is, wow, this movie was hard to make. Yeah, I, I again, I think it. You're probably, I think you're you're right on. I just think for me, it's a difference between Eggers, Eggers and Sarsgaard, who I put like down here in terms of of just size and in terms of clout. And Leo and Inuratsu, who, you know, this is after he'd already won for Birdman, you know, and Leo going for his first Oscar. It, it was exhausting. So I, I, I'm probably being unfair, but that's kind of what it feels like. Well, I'm glad you brought brought up Birdman too, a movie that I can't fucking stand. Oh, it's terrible. I don't like a lot of Inuratsu's movies. Like, I like... Um, I like Amoris Peros. Peros, <laughs> quite a good deal. I, like I actually like 28 Grams. Yep. Isn't too bad. I don't like Babel at all. Like, I like parts of it. That's the one where I kind of got off the train a bit. And oh, then, 21 grams, right? 21, 21 grams. Yeah. I'm sorry. 28 grams. 21 grams a, later. And, yeah, 28 <laughs> grams is what I... Uh, <laughs> that's why I ingest on the weekend. <laughs> that's 20 grams is Saturday. <laughs> yeah, that's Saturday night, baby. But um, uh, Birdman is the one where I really got off the Inaratu bus. Because uh, I hated that fucking movie. It was one of the most pretentious things ever. I remember passing... We saw it in the draft house. And I remember passing my ex-wife a note about 45 minutes in that said, I can't fucking stand this on one of those <laughs> I'm having cards. a bad time. <laughs> this is horrible, thank you. I But I've always maintained that if The Revenant came before Birdman, it would have been received differently. It was the fact that it felt like an obvious push for an Oscar after you know, Birdman had already won. Yeah, I think um, that's a really good point. And it also, back to the Apocalypse Now thing, I'm really, it's funny, I mean, I don't think I like it that much being mentioned on The Northman either, is when they really try to push that narrative of this was really hard, I think it's annoying in both cases, right? But a movie like Apocalypse Now and a movie like, for my, my, for that same kind of genre of, of just overboard new Hollywood filmmaking is Sorcerer, you know, and Sorcerer is one of my favorite movies, but it's also just, it was a complete disaster of a production. I mean, he was firing the whole crew like every day, like people almost died. I don't think, I don't think anyone did die, but it was close like numerous times. Um, and freaking was, he's a, he's a crazy person or, or like Dennis, um, Dennis Hopper's the last movie in a similar sense, you know, I'm tired of films tr- that I think are much more controlled, much safer, trying to almost like buy 
those stories and be like, it was crazy town. It's like the lighthouse. Oh my God. It was so hard. It's like, yeah, but like you could stay in a hotel. You chose to stay in a fish thing versus like you think about Martin Sheen having a fucking heart attack on the set of apocalypse. Now, like that's fucking Dennis Hopper showing up on acid. on acid. So for me, I just don't want films to try to like, you don't get to buy that. You don't get to buy those stories you were still controlled. And it's actually funny because um, to Eggers, he, you know, very big fan of, we were talking earlier about like um, Eastern Bloc films, like Russian films, uh, Polish films, like Zulowski films, big Tarkovsky fan as well. Is he's talking about um, the use of CG um, for any of his films, but specifically for the Northmen. And, you know, he's saying, you know, the bell casting scene from Andre Rublev, you can't do that today. It's just too, it's just too fucking dangerous, but you can see he has a desire to do that kind of filmmaking in camera and not like Nolan, like putting a 747 into uh, the side of a building for stunt, but more like to show something no one's ever seen before. I think he's still attracted by that. I think if Eggers wanted to, he could make an apocalypse now size disaster. <laughs> you know, if they, if they let him, you know, let if they him, let him. Sure, I think he. I think he has that in him. Um, but I don't think the Northman, from my understanding, was anywhere close up. Besides the insanity of COVID, which I know did put this film in a rough spot on numerous occasions. Well, the one thing they talk about, especially Alexander Skarsgård, uh, in his performance, was how controlled and storyboarded uh, the the every shot would be, and that how it he had the opposite. Uh, reaction to it that Anya Taylor-Joy did where she basically was able to play jazz with it. He was like, I didn't know how to connect with this. I mm. just felt like a robot existing inside of like this very controlled frame to where like, I don't, I, I didn't know where me as an actor or as a performer was able to, or was supposed to inject the emotion or the, the soul that I'm supposed to bring to a performance. And he said that it wasn't until that he, he basically got broken down by the process that mm. he, he found a way to do it. But I mean, that goes even to, to talk about the lighthouse a little bit before we full on jump into the Northman. I mean, it's really Eggers and Jaron Blaschke, his cinematographer who get together and meticulously storyboard like every single scene like Alfonso Cuaron who be, has become something of like a mentor to uh, Eggers the entire time from the witch on because he said he just read the script the first time for the witch and fell completely in love with it is that Cuaron was even like I saw the storyboards that they did for the witch and I was like what do you don't leave any room for error or any room for like, edit. any like <laughs> improvisation or anything. It's just like this happens here. This happens here. The camera moves this way and everything, but it, it does speak to how in sync Eggers and Blaschke are the entire time because it's like, they have the images in their head. They have the tableaus in their head and they have like the way the actors are supposed to move and be blocked in their head before they even get to set because Defoe talks about in one of the interviews, I think in that New Yorker profile is that he was like, it was really kind of the same way Skarsgård was, is that he was like, you know, it was really hard for me at first to get into the character because like, you know, there would be a scene in the, in the lighthouse to where like, you know, Eggers, his whole direction would be like, okay, you're talking to Ephraim Winslow the entire time. 
you're crossing the place, like the, the lighthouse to go relight the, the cinder in your pipe. You light it, you're coming back, but you're continuing your monologue the entire time. You go grab this cup of coffee with your right hand, you continue smoking with your left, and then you sit down in this chair. And again, Defoe at first was like, man, this is almost robotic. Like it's You're telling me exactly how my body is even supposed to move. But he, like Anya Taylor-Joy, was like, what was interesting to me about it is that you're there. Like he's, he's like, I burned my hand one time on one of those cinders because like, I wasn't fake smoking that pipe. Like I went over there, I got the cinder, I put it in the pipe, I lit it, I smoked the pipe. I went, I got the hot coffee. I went and I sit that sat down in this rickety chair that was inside of this actual lighthouse. He's like, when you're living the part, it's almost like the method style of directing versus the method style of acting. Like, Eggers is creating the entire environment, which tells you the viewer, the story, like that's how you pick up on all of the narrative is that he's like that, that part of it doesn't fucking matter. It's like, what matters is all of this texture and how these characters interact with said texture, because it tells you everything you need to know about both their background and both where they're going narratively that like any kind of expositional monologue, it, it would just be a waste of time. It's, it's, yeah, back to his, like, you know, his heavy research, it all starts in the research and it's all there. Like, I feel like he says, almost seems like once the research is done, the movie's done. You know, it's like, he's got the, the, the foundation for everything. But I like what you're saying about performance and that I think out of any of these movies, the maybe Defoe, maybe even more than Anya Taylor-Joy as a much more experienced actor is the most entertaining character in any of the films. Like he, he shines through. I mean, the, the scene of like, uh, you don't like me lobster, you know, is well directed. You can see very meticulous, but also like it really bringing some charisma that sometimes isn't because also the, the stilted language, the, like you said, the, the meticulous blocking, the production design, where do you show through, you know, choices or motivation or also just like, um, movie star charisma, and I think the Defoe out of anybody gets that across. Um, in in the, the lighthouse. Well, and it also helped too from like a technical standpoint that like with the witch, you know, Eggers shoots that with Blaschke on a a uh, Ari Alexa, I believe, mm-hmm. but they used antiquated lenses to try and give it a, a textured feel. But with the lighthouse. He literally went and shot it on 16 millimeter black and white using like production methods from the thirties, right down to the lenses and cameras and everything. So again, and the aspect ratio is all strange. Aspect Ratio was fucking weird as shit. It's not studio. It's something smaller. Yeah. It's like skinnier. It's even smaller in the Academy, I yep. think. But like that, I, I would imagine now I'm not an actor, so I don't know. But to me, it's almost the same as like creating the vibe of like a black box theater to where like, you know where your marks are, you know what the environment is. And like he's using even the equipment to create the mood of like, okay, this is how the finished product is actually going to feel. So when you're in like that, that theatrical kind of mindset it, the audience suddenly disappears and it's just you, the material and the cameras rolling. And like, it really allows Defoe 
and our boy Robert fucking Pattinson to like just riff, even though like their 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 movements are heavily choreographed. Because we haven't even gotten to the fact that like Eggers' movies are often pretty fucking funny. Like the witch, not as the witch is a little too po face. It's also one of the reasons I don't love it as much. The Northman has some funny stuff, but it's few and far between. But the lighthouse is fucking hysterical. I saw this um, interview, reading the interview with him today about the lighthouse, and I think the interviewer made this point: is that basically the lighthouse is about two horrible roommates. Like you can just completely it's the odd couple. It's just you whittle it down to just like two shitty. It's like a sitcom. Right, like you said, the odd couple, or you know, um, it again, Neil Simon kind of set up, right? And it totally plays because it is these two actors who are both like very talented actors, just totally just needling each other for an hour and a half, and you add in some Lovecraftian elements, and I think out of all three films, too, feels again probably. It's funny you mentioned that story about you know, how he directed him. It's okay. You do this with your left hand. You do this with your right hand is that this does feel the most fluid out of all three to me in terms of performance. Like I think that they're like that whole lobster scene is fucking funny. The first line of the movie is a fart before anyone says one word. There's so many farts. It's just so much. It's just like, and you're fucking farts, you know, like Pattinson losing his shit about that. It, it is, but it's funny because it has the, deplorable nature of these kind of men who would be wikis, right? It has that sense of like just drinking and smoking and just like farting and the way they talk about women, just the dirtiest fucking men you can think of. My dad worked construction this summer. He goes, you know, I heard jokes. I cannot tell you like, like that, that kind of just like real, like, like working man, people have been in prison. They, you know, obviously they both probably have as well in this movie. Just it, he really gets that across, and it's just fun to live in that <laughs> that miasma of just like shitty masculinity. Yeah, you can smell this movie. Yeah, the entire time it's on your skin. Did you ever read the interview that Ari Oster did with uh, Robert Eggers for no. Fangoria Number Five? It's for the Lighthouse, and it's pretty interesting. It, it's one of the things that I I find endearing about both of them is that. More Eggers than Oster. Oster kind of comes off like very, very pretentious. They yeah. both do. I even messaged Phil after I reread it after seeing The Northman again. And I was like, dude, these guys are fucking great. But like they do come off like super pretentious because like they're talking about like Harold Pinter and Samuel Beckett in relation to the lighthouse and Fangoria magazine. And it's just kind of like, even the magazine like points out to where they're like, I think this might be the first time in Fangoria's history that Harold Pinter has ever been like mentioned or name dropped in it. But the thing that I've found endearing about Eggers is that unlike Oster, he has a self-awareness about himself to where like, he knows his fucking like interests are super esoteric and like, he's never going to make a Marvel movie. Like he's been offered things like that's one of the reasons the lighthouse apparently came about is that he had some irons in the fire and bigger projects even being hand, like offered to him. And a lot of stuff just kind of fell through. And he was like, well, what if I made this like smaller $11 million, like ghost movie 
that takes place in a lighthouse that's totally lets me do my thing for A24 again. And that's how that movie came about. It's like Red Rocket for Sean Baker. Exactly. Kind of it's thing, like, yeah, yeah I, I need to make something. I need to create. But Eggers has like this strange balance that I find very charming, especially in his like podcast appearances to where it's almost like he sounds like your goofy kind of nerdy best friend who can also like just quote Titus Andronicus uh, like off the back of his hand. Like, and he'll just throw like Samuel Beckett references or like waiting for Godot or anything just into casual conversation while he's eating a boat bowl of like oats and grain and drinking like a soy latte the entire time. Like he's a total like goth weirdo, but ha- knows that like, Hey, I'm really lucky that anybody cares about what I'm fucking doing. Like if, you know, Nobody had noticed me way back when I'd still be doing storefront like productions of Nosferatu in, in New Hampshire. Yeah, he's always because I've seen him and Ari Oster both in person. Like he he came. I saw the um, one of the early screenings of The Lighthouse at Fantastic Fest in 2019, I guess. And he came out and we all lost our shit. And that was a really cool experience. But he was he's always very self-deprecating, like in a lot of his interviews, yeah. like especially with the Northmen, where he's just like, I, like you said, I don't know what I was doing. I was in over my head. He talks about like he can't watch The Witch. He's like, I had no idea what I was doing. So the performances are great, but I was a horrible filmmaker. I'm like, all right, ease it up a little bit on yourself, buddy. You know, but he is very, like you said, self aware, very aware of, like you said, how lucky he is, but also maybe where his faults lie, you know, in areas he has to improve, which I respect. But I think at the same time, it's like, I hope he doesn't spend too much time beating himself up because it's like, look, man, like, it's a lot of us who would kill to be where you are. He's not quite as bad as Adam Driver, who like refuses to watch his own performance. He walks like, out of interviews. Okay, calm down, yeah, man. Like yeah. I get it, but at the same time, like because like you, it's the same, albeit obviously on like a much lower level. But if you ever go back and read something that you wrote, even like oh yeah, a few years ago, and you're like Jesus, like I was a horrible writer then. You're like you matured and, and changed that much in like three years yeah. or whatever. But do you want to get to the Northman proper? Love to. All right, let's do it. Robert Eggers, The Northman. Martin, how'd you feel on first viewing? I felt pretty good. Um, I don't think, based on our conversation, I liked it quite as much as you did. Um, but I was excited to watch because I am, you know, a big fucking Viking, and this is uh, my lineage, uh, is people like this. So from, again, the detail perspective, like my mom's going to freak. She's obsessed with, like, with like Viking history, um, like, some really amazing stuff he put together for this. Um, 
I think at first viewing, uh, he talked a lot about in interviews that whether he knew it or not, he was very inspired by Milius as Conan the Barbarian. And I felt that watching it, um, there's straight up scenes taken. So for any of the scenes like that, the scene where he gets the sword is like my favorite scene in the movie, just full on pulpy, like Robert E. Howard kind of sword and sorcery stuff. Um, I feel like the middle part, I don't love everything just hanging out at the farm. It felt to me a little bit like a, a smaller movie surrounded by a much bigger beginning and a much bigger ending. Uh, the, the middle felt more like kind of returning home to something he was comfortable with, which was like, you know, the witch or lighthouse, both about these kind of like one location places where things start to go weird. But in this version, our hero is the one who's the tormentor, you know, who's turning things against his, his uncle and his, his mother as well. That's my first initial thoughts. Yeah, no, I didn't love it on first viewing either. It wasn't until the second viewing that I really settled into what I thought he and the co-writer is Sfjorn? It's Sean. Sean, yeah. is that how you say it? I think so, yeah. Who's an Icelandic poet and novelist. Um, that I mean, he, I mean, sorry, I just the weird. Sean? I believe it's Sean. Yeah. That's how he's, he's pronounced it in interviews. Um, but that, like, he and Sean were crafting their own epic. Like it, right. and they were talking about how like they wanted it to feel like almost like somebody had uncovered one of the lost stories from, you know, the, the late 800s AD um, and how it was about like this kind of Viking anti-hero, which who is Amleth. Hamlet. <laughs> who's, yeah. Name is an anagram for Hamlet. Um, but that he also, like, Eggers claims that he didn't know that this tale, which is, like, a big part of that culture and is a known, like, let's say quantity inside of the epic, uh, the people who study these stories, let's say, is that he didn't actually know that it was the basis for Hamlet at first when he started At first, writing. okay. And yeah. then he was like, oh, shit. Like, it, like, it kind of dawned on him halfway through and while he was doing all of his research and stuff. Now, here's the thing. I, I don't know how much spoiler territory we want to get into yeah. because that's where some of my problems with the movie do kind of crop up is some big reveals, let's say, that go on through the movie. But the thing that I did like is like, again, it's, it's Eggers being obsessed with very particular things, not just detail and design in, in this massive mud caked world that we were asked to exist in alongside uh, Alexander Skarsgård is that he begins the movie as a child and a child who has to essentially go through the rituals of becoming a man in this very masculine, I will die by the sword like uh, society and, and he's supposed to be quite weak. It starts out and they're saying he can't protect himself. Yeah. Like he's not, they're worried he's not going to be a man. He's a little baby bitch. Yeah. Is what he is. And like Ethan Hawke arrives home. Like that's the opening scene is Ethan Hawke as the Viking King, his father arriving home. And there's this great, incredibly sweet moment where like, you know, everybody's bowing his, as he rides through the, the village, he finds his son and he's like, son, you no longer can be addressed as as, as, a, as boy a boy anymore. Yeah. I will now address you as a man. 
and he goes through this whole thing, but then it and, and it feels almost like he's he's speaking to him in a very authoritarian manner, but it ends with him being like, "And now come here, and I can smother you." And he uh, like gives never him this too old giant, for smothering yeah, son. Yeah, exactly. It's this big bear hug, and it makes you remember like the Ethan Hawke, the big burly badass who who he can be, like. The, the guy who's in all the Richard Linklater movies also shines through beneath it's the that boyhood kind of dad. rough exterior. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's the boyhood dad, like, shines through this Viking exterior that Eggers has built with this guy. Yeah, it's, um, I, 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 Hawk, you know, I, my, I think we talked before, like, my dad, I mean, obviously we talked about me seeing his wiener, but, like, my, my dad... <laughs> Has always just not liked Ethan Hawke. He has since explorers. Like, I don't like that kid. So anytime he's shown up, he's been like anti Ethan Hawke. So I don't know. It's weird. Strange stance. Yeah, I don't know. I'm like, okay, Dad. Um, but he, I really like the the his star persona now. He was saying he's he's plays the gruffer thing too. This kind of weird subgenre, almost like he was kind of living in the same world as like Liam Neeson of these guys who were not action stars who started doing these kind of like boilerplate B-movie revenge things, you know? Or even art house stuff like Abel Ferrara's Zeros and Ones where he's that yeah. commando going through a decimated Rome, you know, that Ferrara shot basically in this clandestine film while COVID was going on with nothing but, like, drones and, and hidden DV cameras and stuff. But Hawk is playing essentially, like, a, a hardened military operative in that, and he's just as believable as he is as, like, you know, the dude from bef the before trilogy. It's he's got me. It's funny. When, yeah. Cause I think that's the, you talk about kind of a little bitch boy, like his character, especially before sun sunrise, you know, like he could be that kid grown up from oh, yeah. the, Nor the Northman, you know, of now just, that uh, I think about it, this is kind of like boyhood for Vikings <laughs> in a weird way. I, I think, um, I think I'd be being unfair partly to the movie. And I, I think this is just a lot of times how I view movies is like, I'm critiquing against the movie I wanted, right. Versus the movie that it is, which I know we all do. Um, I think like starting off, I'm like, Oh shit. If this is the movie, this is gonna be 10 out of 10 for me. I mean the, the berserker scene when they're in the woods and they're getting like, they're turning basically into animals and like his scream, and it was great. One of his interviews, uh, Edgar said it's basically a, a Zulowski scream. And I was, oh, yeah. and I was like, yes, because you can see he's pulling from that like really like Eastern European, like almost arch, arch performance stuff. And when it goes from that scene to that amazing one take, well, and it's like Brechtian. That's the other that's, thing. That, that, that's that, the thing that Zulowski's really kind of after is that you're breaking that fourth wall to where like even the audience is like, oh, this guy's like completely like psychotically losing it right you're now. You're right. And the, the Brechtian's the way. The very like, you know, there was that one thing where a guy just screams the entire time that play, yeah. right? So, um, but the amazing one shot of him climbing that wall and going in and just like, like you said, 20 takes of slaughtering people. It's funny because in the interview I read with Eggers, he said that was also out of necessity because a lot of his early films don't have like the tracking shots are like side to side. There's that great shot of um, of uh, Robert Pattinson walking across the rocks in the lighthouse. And he's perfectly framed like in the, the right third of the frame and it just like moves. This is very much more like you said, the revenant, you know, of like moving camera. Um, and he said it was because we just didn't have the time. 
he said, I, he was, we kind of did the math and realized we could we didn't know how to storyboard a battle scene, you know, or have the time. Because we, we kept saying, we're not going to have time to finish this movie, but if we do it in one take, so it's kind of, you know, it was the expectations of the schedule, but also, like, it's a fucking great shot and, and well. And also, it doesn't draw attention to itself the way some long takes do. I didn't feel like it did. Well, okay. Comparatively so speaking. You brought up uh, Russian cinema. In, in it's not Russian previous, art. <laughs> in the previous segment. Um, but it, it reminds me a lot of... I rewatched Come and See this morning in preparation for this recording. And, like, you can see how much DNA he's extracting from those kind of wilder... Uh, Soviet experimental films. Stalkers all over this, I think. Stalkers all over this. But like, come and see in particular in that like, how things are framed, those those center, uh, almost Demi-esque, like close-ups to where it's nothing but the characters' faces and they're looking up or they're looking at something. Like, so much of Come and See is just framed around that. Specifically, for those who have never seen Come and See, it's one of the most grueling motion pictures ever made. It's, you know, about a, a Belarusian uh, child who is you know, ripped from his family, recruited into the army in the forties the when the resistance is going up against the Nazis. And then essentially is dragged apocalypse now style through, you know, a countryside war where he does nothing but witness atrocity after atrocity. And by the end, you're just as broken as he is. And, one of the big central, uh, let's say, visual motifs is that he's this baby-faced, big-eyed child. And as he keeps going on, his face just looks more and more weathered and weathered to where by the end he almost looks like fucking Benjamin Button. Like he's been through goddamn hell. But like he does a lot of the same formalist stuff, Eggers does, I should say, that the Soviet... Uh, directors were doing to where like it's just very long patient tracking shots weird tricks that don't quite call attention to themselves to your point but they're still showy oh, in yeah. their own way i think and everything in the northman is far showier than anything in any of these soviet films that we're talking about because like you see the purposeful dolly tracking shots. Like he's going out of his way to, to have all this awful shit happening in the background. And then he directly references come and see because there's a huge scene in the middle of come and see where they burn an entire village and, and lock all the women and children in the barn and then set it on fire, which is what the Vikings do in this too, to where they burn women and children alive, like in this kind of ritualistic, uh, very like awful, like execution sequence. Yeah, this is, um, I, I think again, works really well for me until that middle, that middle section. And that's just kind of when it loses steam um, narratively for me. And again, I, I think that I wanted that berserker feel the entire time. Like I wanted to see, um, the epic nature. I also feel like it loses its feeling of an epic during that middle section when he ends up at the farm where it starts out and it's like this journey. It's like, he's, you know, but he gets really quickly where he needs to be like in the first 40 minutes of the movie, which for me, I I was like, again, I wanted more of his travels. Um, that's the movie I had in my mind. Um, 
the, what I was not given. But again, that's probably not fair to Eggers, but it's just not what he supplied me with. Sure, but it feels... I know this might be an odd comparison, but it reminded me also of Django Unchained a whole bunch. That's a good... Yeah, and actually, how, yeah. like, it's so segmented and you're going on this hero's journey to where he even reverts back to being a slave himself and debasing himself all in the name of revenge the entire time. And how you'd have those long stretches on, like, Don Johnson's plantation or in Candyland when you finally get it. Now, the difference between Tarantino and Eggers is that Tarantino is just, he never loses that pulp edge. Like, it's all this big, blustery displays of bad taste that you you either revel in or you're just completely repulsed by. Or maybe both at the same time. I don't know. Especially with Django Unchained. But, like... Uh, the Northman, one of the things that I struggle with, and I guess if you haven't seen this again, I'm going to make the same comment. I always do. I don't know why you're listening to a podcast on the Northman in the first fucking place. So that's on you, but spoiler alert, here's the thing that bothers me about the storytelling in this movie that I still can't quite reconcile, even on multiple viewings is that he does a lot of rug pulling both narratively and with your perception of the characters in that in the earliest parts, it's, you know, Ethan Hawke is this, as we just described him, he's, he's the boyhood dad, the great King in, in, in the King's body. Who's massacred by his, his brother, uh, his bastard half breed brother. Um, he steals his queen who is Nicole Kidman and is taken away. And, you know, Amleth, Vows vengeance, and that he will track. You know, the, is it Fjorn down? Fjolner, Fjolner down, so that he he can murder him. I will avenge you, mother. I will avenge you, father. I will save you, mother. I will kill you, Fjornin. Like that's his mantra the entire time. Now, we get to that middle section, the pastoral uh, kind of stretch, in that Fjorin is now he he basically took the kingdom away, but then immediately after Lost had it, it taken from him and is now a, a sheep farmer or a goat farmer or something in the middle of nowhere with Nicole Kidman still. And they, they have their slaves and they are obviously well off and he's treated like a king there, but like his kingdom is now vastly reduced. It's like dung heaps. Exactly. Yeah. Is that, and it feels like Eggers subverting the idea of the 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 big epic saga is that it's almost like, you know, Odysseus goes on these massive journeys and, and fights Cyclopses and, and everything and blah, blah, blah. Here it's almost like, well, what if the slave, you know, was sent to the farm in the middle of nowhere and realized that his target had already been kind of cut down by life and has to uh, meet that idea head first and morally reckon with it does it do does it do a whole lot of that not really but I do think I see what he's trying to get at with it yeah and that's actually I'm interested in it intellectually I don't know if I like it but is it engaging engaging narratively no there's, there's a difference between the two right I think like it actually reminded me quite a bit of we talked about this, you know the some of the plot stuff from the Batman 
Um, and also for me, Last Jedi, where it's about disillusionment, where you have the sense of what used to be this classic hero's journey, the things that you like built your the foundation of your revenge upon was your father was great, your mother's pure, your uncle's evil. So for Batman, yeah. my, my parents were both great. They were they were innocent. And I am basing my my vengeance and my protecting the city on their greatness. You know, Last Jedi calls into question, are the Jedi as bad as the Sith? You know, it starts to bring in the gray area. Well, and also can the, uh, basically, a nobody, a street urchin rise to the, the, the rank of Jedi, too? Yes. Yeah, very much. Yeah, any, yeah, that sense that anybody could be the hero. Right. It's not just blood or, or being the great hero. I, I agree with you. I think I don't like, and again, you know, hope you all, at this point you've all seen this, but one of the reveals that it's cool if I say is that, you know, his mother was hated his father that she said, you know, oh, you think I married him because I loved him? She goes, I was stolen by him on a raid. That's how most of these marriages started. I was a slave. I was a slave, but I was like raped and taken. And then you're the child of rape. That's what she says too. And it's, it's interesting where it's like, it, it makes, um, you know, it makes, uh, Amleth kind of, he's taken aback and has to reconsider like the point of his, he's, he has this very simple minded view. I don't know if it does much for the film. Um, I also, cause like he ends up again, killing his mother and his half brother in a rage. And it's like, eh, okay. Like it, there's like really nothing comes of it. It doesn't have the Shakespearean weight. He that, literally kills his half brother immediately after he goes to his room and stabs that motherfucker to death. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, that's his. That's his not. That's his cousin. Well, it's technically kind of half brother because it's still his mother. No, that's that's his that's his ba- his dad's bastard kid. His dad from the oh, beginning. that's with another mother. Yeah, from the beginning, Jesus. he's the kid from the beginning, the baby grown up, and then oh. the, the the younger child who he kills. With his mother. I didn't actually pick up on that at all, that yeah. that's the baby grown up. Well, you want to talk about fuckboy Supremes? Like, oh, yeah. That guy's the biggest fuckboy. And, you, and you're just, it feels great when he dies. But you have... I just love to watch him get his heart cut out. It was, well, talk about some of the craziest shit ever. When he screams down at Clay Spang, he's like... You leave her alone, and I'll give you your son's heart, and then just has his fucking heart in a bag on his hip. I was like, this movie didn't have to go this hard, but well, it did. And then it goes even further, and he said, "They said he's like, actually, it's not your kid's heart. You'll never know where it is. Right? It's just, that's a sheep's heart, and they're torturing him full on. It reminded me of Conan when he's on the tree of woe. You know, he's just being like being tortured. Um, but I think maybe with I'm not sure. I don't want to speak for you, but the issue I have is when it bounces between myth and doing a myth and trying to bring in modern complexities and modern gray areas that in my experience is not a big part of myth. Sometimes there is like gray area and like you learn a lesson about like what is revenge. This one also wants to have its cake and eat it too. The end is like does not work well or he said, because he, he learns early on that he has to choose between love for his kin or vengeance for or hate for his enemy. Like that's like the dichotomy of the film, right? Because he keeps running into these soothsayers. One is basically played by Bjork as yes. a, a wilderness witch yeah. of some sort. And then there's another 
uh, like basically soothsayer in, in the mountains who meets with him and even has, there's that great scene where like Willem Dafoe's severed head yep. talks to him. And, I think it's and, Brendan Gleeson. A he skinny, lo- if not him, it looks like him. At first I thought it was Stellan Skarsgård, like with a giant beard and kind of a oafish, nose. Like, yeah. Yeah, like uh, some prosthetic work going on. But like, yeah, he's told over and over again, and, and it is given you in that mythic, epic quality that the saga is contained of like, there are these almost like, it's almost like video game structuring in a weird way, like Zelda to where like, you'll just go and then like this weird ghost or spirit or like, again, soothsayer would be like, and you go forward and you must get the next they call part it fetch, of the fetch quests. Yeah, exactly. Games. Yeah. Yeah. But like in, in this, it's doing kind of the same thing to where he hits these mark, these markers or these signposts. And we know where the narrative's going from that point forward. But the thing that I don't get is what you were talking about. It doesn't quite work for me is because like the film and I've seen people already argue that like, ah, the early part is all told from the boy's point of view. So you might be looking at Ethan Hawke's character through like his eyes and it's not actually truthful, but like on even a second viewing, like I watched it and was like, no, like the movie is like Ethan Hawke's character is good. Like, he's a good dude. He loves his kid. He wants him to basically go through this ritual of manhood, be strong. He even has that, because that's one of the things, again, that kind of to your point about the whole idea of, like, it wants to have its cake and eat it too, is that it keeps changing perspectives at weird times to where, like, it, you know, for most of the movie, you're just with Amleth and Alexander Skarsgård. Like, it's just told from his singular driving point of view. But other times it'll cut away. And early on it does that in a way that I actually think hinders the narrative to some degree because, like, Ethan Hall comes home, he has that whole thing with his son, and then there's that moment where he and Nicole Kidman discuss it, and Nicole Kidman's basically like, no, let me take you to our bed. You've just come home from war because Ethan Hawke's wounded and he's worried about his mortality. And like, frankly, Willem Dafoe as the court jester basically says in front of everybody, hey, this guy, he's banging your wife and like he's trying to take your kingdom. And and that's why Clace Bang like freaks out with him and, bo- and even like threatens to kill Willem Dafoe. And like it takes Ethan Hawke standing up in that scene, that's the one I was referencing earlier to where I was like, oh, shit. It's just the story. Willem Dafoe just tells you the whole story right there. But also, it makes it kind of clear that Willem Dafoe suspects that maybe something was going on between, you know, Clay Spang and, and Nicole Kidman. But anyway, because he even says, like, I want to keep him around. He might have, like, an errant tongue, but he's, he's still a wise man and a good friend. But back to the point about like changing perspectives is that uh, it has this whole scene where he and Nicole Kidman debate like putting, you know, young Amleth through this like ritual of manhood. And it feels like they're on the same page and like weirdly love each other. And like later after, you know, the killing happens, uh, like they kill Ethan Hawke and then, you know, his uncle orders Amleth's uh, execution and he's running through the village. And, and that part's also a little confusing, like motivation wise, because like, do all the soldiers just start killing everyone because they're part of the, the yeah, Ethan Hawke's unclear. kingdom? 
it's it's weird, but Amblis sees uh, Clay's bang basically dragging Nicole Kidman away, and she's screaming. She's fucking hysterical. And later during that great scene, which is a fucking barn burner of a scene, like Nicole Kidman hasn't given material been given material <laughs> that good probably since the last time that she matched up against Alexander Skarsgård with the. Uh, Big Little Lies. And her laugh is so great at the yeah. end of that scene. Yeah. She's so good in it. Like, ugh, totally just, like, you want to talk about Shakespearean, like, dives into that whole, like, Lady Macbeth, yep. like, archetype. But she says to him, I wasn't screaming. I was laughing. I was basically embracing it the whole time. And you're like, I don't think we're watching it through his eyes at that point. I think we're watching it through the movies and the movies is distinctly telling you like, no, she was screaming. She didn't want to be part of this. That That's the thing is I, at a core, maybe a core issue then is he's trying to do the epic, right? And epics were very much third person. You know, it's just this like, he went on a journey, you know, in interiority was also some somewhat not always there. Right. In myth, you know, and this is trying to get into the interiority at moments, but also wants him to be this like Conan type character for certain stretches of the film. And then it's like very much the anti-hero. Yeah. Anti-hero. But then it's like all of a sudden, like you said, like we're changing perspective. We're kind of getting into his head a little bit. We're, we're like these people saying, I don't think the film's even doing that where it's a sense of perspective because it's a myth. Like it has fucking chapter myths. You don't, this is not about, Oh, it's just the way we're seeing it. I think they're, they retconned the beginning, you know, by doing in a weird way, by having her say, well, I was laughing. But I think again, at the end idea that he, he leaves behind a lot of times with myth, I feel like or good, like epic stories. You have like a, a choice, right? And like the big choice, this one feels like, I can go off with my now family, Until Joyce character is pregnant. I can go have a future or I can go finish my vengeance. But again, the cake, having the cake and eating it too is by killing and because of the hatred for my enemy, my uncle and my mother, I am allowing my bloodline to continue, which is love for my kin. So again, it's like, it's both. So at the end, it's like he doesn't change what he does. He just, except for the fact, I guess he found love along the way is the one different thing is he's now the the, the recurring image of the, of the tree, right? Of the continuation of his bloodline of of his father to him, to his two children, to twins. Well, and even that part in, in that New Yorker profile, they kind of point out that some of the love stuff was what the studio was tinkering with because they almost wanted to be like a more sympathetic character the entire time. But the love stuff between him and Anya Taylor-Joy, who we haven't even touched on yet, is, it gives another just terrific performance for Eggers. And this is the first time they've worked together in like seven years mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And like, she's great as this... Slav witch again, who really revels that. I know that you don't love the stretch on the farm, but on the second viewing, I really liked it because it almost becomes a, like this series of increasingly fucked up pranks that they pull on him because they don't just want to kill him. Amleth wants to break his faith in God and make 
everyone around him basically turn against him. And it involves like them drugging them with psychedelic poisons, creating this like vomit, like vomitorium in the middle of the, the fucking like stand by me or oh, something. It's really <laughs> disgusting. But that's the thing is that again, it's Eggers like Eggers loves bodily functions. He loves farts. He loves burps. He loves people vomiting. He loves intestines spilling out when you like just totally disembowel somebody like he the violence in this movie is so impressively gnarly that if anything it gets three stars just for that it's funny i don't find it to be that gory um that's insane i don't know i just it it didn't hit me in that way he Uh, eats a man's face that part's pretty gory well that's the yeah i guess the berserker scene is the most probably the goriest scene in the film right Ah, uh, I mean, dude, all the vomit stuff. And the, I mean, that's and gross. The, that's pretty gross. But I mean, they're puking up blood and shit. The one guy gets his stomach split open and is like spilling his guts out as he goes. That final volcanic sword fight is gorier than like I even remembered. Like there's a lot of shit in this movie that just had my jaw drop open the entire time. Like, oh my God, like this is really brutal. So no, I... I can't get I think on I'm the just, whole, I think this just, isn't violent enough. Well, I also just spent last week watching New French Extremity, so maybe my... Uh, That's fair. You're dull. My, I mean, are, are considerably. Numbed. You watch Martyrs, a little more fucked up than, than The Northman. Sure. <laughs> but, like, again, this felt like it had the same brutality that, like, The Revenant did. And yeah, The yeah. Revenant, to me, is impressively gnarly. That's true. So, now, the other thing that doesn't 100% work for me is even though I really like her and I think Skarsgård who we haven't even like really talked about yet who we should just call Alexander Swolesgard from this point Oof. forward like he's so impressively like juiced up and gigantic like his fucking neck muscles his traps oh his traps <laughs> he's in that that um like natural spring sauna at one point where only his 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 shoulders are like emerged above the water level and he's had the shit kicked out of him and it looks like he's wearing like a fucking uh linebacker's collar only it's made of flesh like it's it's she's <laughs> so big and you can't believe it but the thing about even though I love him and I love her I don't think their love story feels like a studio note from another movie. Like it feels like them being like, we have to soften this dude or at least give the audience some kind of in. Because the one thing that I think Edgar Eggers does do is bring his sense of moral ambivalence to it. Because like at one point, you know, he explores Clay Spang's, character is almost being like this guy who's reckoning with the idea of of taking power by force and then having it taken from you being outcast and kind of learning to live with your own kind of meager sense of power and the people who love around you and like i almost feel like we're supposed to sympathize with him to a certain degree because it challenges amleth's perception of him but at the same time he's also performing fucking human sacrifices and owns slaves and like the he's, movie he's horrible kind of to just, the slaves too. Yeah, and it just sort of glosses over that because it's just it feels like Eggers being like, Yeah, this is neither good nor bad. It's just how these people existed. And like you can be sympathetic to this guy, 
while he's also like indulging in the worst parts of the era in which he exists. It it's the benefit, but also the hindrance of his commitment to reality. Right. You know, is when you bring in realism into a myth. Again, I was talking earlier about the 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 fight between myth, you know, mythic nature and like realism. I think you feel it pretty heavily in this film of he's doing the a myth like a uh like a Siegfried myth, like a Fritz the Fritz Lang film, you know, but doing it where all the period details are correct. When in fact like this didn't this kind of myth wouldn't have happened. Like you know, it's it's like yeah. trying to do, you know, the mythic kind of almost sword and sorcery, but also like you think about again like what he talked about referencing a lot was John Milius's Conan, right? Which is, it's not it's it's based on you know some sense of you know san, you know kind of Roman era maybe, but besides that, it's just you know Hyboria, Hi, you know, it's Robert E. Howard's like fantasy land. So it's not really obsessed with the detail as much as it is like the story it's being told. And this one, it feels like those kind of are at odds. Does that make sense? You know, of sure. like trying to do realism, but also do myth at the exact same time. But that also connects with, I think, the gray area of of storytelling. Um, but I think you're right. The fact that it kind of there's times where he glosses over things when it's not convenient to the story that he's telling at that moment. You know, if, I didn't even mean that. It just felt like his vision was intact there and it highlighted the studio notes even more mm. because like we're supposed to sympathize with this guy because he's had to reckon with the the moral or immoral uh, nature that everybody lives and how power is taken in, in no way but by force, you know, and he did it and then he had to have that happen to him and now has been humbled to a certain degree, but he still is indulging in like the shitty parts of life because that's just how they existed. Like Eggers is fine portraying it that way, but like the way we're supposed to connect to Amleth is that he falls in love with another slave and rises up and like it's a very traditional like hero's journey beat to where it's like no it makes him almost into like a tragic figure in a way when like he really isn't he's just a fucking dickhead who can't abide by the old Klingon proverb that like revenge is a dish best served cold like that's what we ultimately learn from this movie like is that he learned that like oh shit revenge might not be all it's cracked up to me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I I wonder if the studio notes were more the way we're viewing their relationship because the relationship I believe is Eggers. I think it's central to the plot and I think it is working towards that reveal. But I do agree. It's like, I think the scene of like, like you mentioned the scene of him in the hot spring is this very like romantic, like I'll, I'll, I'll help. I'll keep you warm kind of bullshit. Um, but I do, th- I, yeah, it loses kind of the mythic quality. Again, you think of Conan and his relationship with the Valkyrie, you know, that he meets her and it's these two people who met in the night and they're, they've met their match. And it's like, I, I didn't think I would find you on my journey of revenge, a very similar kind of thing. Um, yeah, it does. I think just the way it's edited, it just feels a little bit ham fisted. Um, yeah, it just the film it, because it's also like an interlude right before the big climax of the movie. And it just feels like we got to get one more beat in here that makes you connect to this guy before he pulls off his like big act of vengeance. Let's yeah. say um, the other movie. Have you ever seen hard to be a God? 
I was thinking of that movie. Yeah, Alexi it, German's. Yeah, and it's the 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 book the novel is the same guy who wrote the novel Roadside Picnic, which oh. is which is what Stalker's based on. Yeah. That, so that feels like another one that's yeah. a huge influence, especially with all the mud and grime and like the texture. <laughs> well, and also like the moral ambivalence, how like, you know, hard to be a God presents you as the one enlightened person who essentially goes to this medieval planet and, and journeys through this time and, and visits with this, these people for three fucking hours. Um, he does fucking rule though. It's really, really great. <laughs> I, I saw it on the big screen, like during Ooh. the only showing they ever did at the Ritz downtown and it was just mind blowing. Like Watching that black and white film film like photography in that is so amazing. But also you want to talk about a movie that he borrows a lot of like very formal rigor from. Like he does that. There's all those crazy wild Zulaski S like tracking shots and everything. But anyway, what I'm getting at is that that movie I feel like the other thing that he's cherry picking outside of just the visual aesthetics is the the way that you're an observer. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you, it's both good and bad with these like people who live in nothing but like dirt and grime and their own weird like kind of pagan beliefs. Is that you know it doesn't judge them at all. It's just like here, make up your mind for yourself. And I feel like a huge chunk of the Northman does that. And that's the other thing that highlights those kind of studio noty uh, segments is that, you know, it's it's weird for you to ask me to, to treat this guy like a hero while also like maybe judging this other guy for his slaves and everything. I don't know. It just doesn't 100% work for me. What does work is the volcanic sword fight. Naked volcanic sword fight, which on second viewing... I swear they blur out the dongs. There's no, I didn't see one dong. There's not a single dong. And if you're going to stage a naked sword fight, like, dude, let the swords fight if you know what I mean. I want to see Vigo in Eastern Promises. Yeah. Wayne. I want to see balls and grundle. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it was interesting, though. The final, when he kills uh, his uncle, it cuts to that awesome profile shot, which is the exact same uh, design as the lighthouse. Yeah, and I was even the the the, the way their muscles are. It's the, the they look like Roman statues. Yeah, and which is um, he what it was cool because I was reading up on Eggers and a lot of his visual cues, specifically for the lighthouse, were, was the symbolist movement and the the uh, symbolist painters, and they would use these elements. Of course it was. Of course, yeah. I went, went in a rabbit hole today about symbolists, and he was like, about Sasha Schneider and Jean, uh, Jean Delville. And there are some some images that are right out of, that he stole, or, you know, borrowed for uh, the White House. And a lot of them are these, like, male kind of Grecian or Roman figures, like, next to each other. So it's like, he's doing that again. It just feels like a complete replication of that style. Yeah, and it's, it, it, well, it's very painterly. There's quite a few, like, he'll always have, again, like, I like when he goes to his tableaus, you know, and it's just, like, just these boomer shots of, you know, looks like it's just drawn right out of, like, an art museum. Well, I mean, like, his earliest mentor was a Latvian-American painter named Hyman Bloom, who was, like, one of Jackson Pollock's, like, mentors and everything. But, like, he credits Bloom giving him these, like, weird wood carvings from... Albrecht Durer. Oh, Durer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and like how like, you know, before that he was reading comics and, 
comics and stuff. And like he even is quoted in the, the New Yorker profile where it goes through this uh, kind of genesis of his creativity is that he's like, all of a sudden I saw these like ancient myths and, and like satyrs and wood nymphs and stuff just put like shit like Thor to shame. You know, like all this, and I put my comic books away and I knew where my calling was for the rest of my life. And God bless him for his pretensions, I suppose. The the question I have, I, I agree. I mean, I is one of, he's a filmmaker that he's not my favorite filmmaker, but I'll always see what he's going to do next. I also like that he's such a fucking nerd like we've talked about. Yeah. Like, I like that he is not phoning it in ever. He researches like a crazy person. Um, I like his attention to detail. I would be interested to see what he would do with a modern day film. He, he says he'll never make one. Okay. I didn't know that, but it in makes that, sense in that Sean fantasy interview. Like fantasy literally asked him like, Hey, like, do you think we'll ever get like a modern like set movie from you? He goes, uh, no, I have no interest in that. I can imagine him doing like a fantasy world maybe, or maybe not that. I think he loves the research. It seems like to it's like what he really gets off on. He even yeah. admits that is that his favorite part of creation is research. Yeah. It and you can feel it himself in that world because he just reaches that headspace. It's almost like a, like the act of uh, creative Nirvana for him. Yeah. But Martin, it's been swell talking about the Northman with you. Yes, indeed. Should we tell him what's coming up with the next episode? Let's okay. Now we're gonna get well. It's it comes from the land of Hawaii. Hawaii, and let me tell you, some people love it, most people hate it, but we're here to celebrate it. But you're gonna have to find out next time on Secret Handshake. Stay tuned. She's in love with herself. She likes the dark. And on her milk white neck. The devil's mark Now it's all hollow The moon is full Or will she trick or treat I bet she will
breath. 